A podcast in which I, Tina, a real live opera singer, tells me, Amanda, woman, perfect voting record haver, and recent spender of money at the emergency vet, about the plot of an opera, and will probably ruin it for everyone. Each week, Amanda has no idea what opera we're going to talk about. But I do know who the composer is, and I've been given one minute to summarize their entire life. And this week, our composer is Igor Stravinsky. Mm-hmm. You got one minute on the clock. Ready, set, go. Born June 17, 1882, Gemini, right up there on the Finnish-Russian border. His father is a well-known opera singer. Stravinsky began piano lessons at age nine, followed by tuition in music theory, sorry, tutelage in music theory and composition. In 1901, he began studying under Rimsky-Korsakov. Oh yeah, that guy from episode six, we've talked about this, who suggested that he not attend conservatory because Rimsky-Korsakov. In 1913, his ballet, The Rite of Spring, caused near riots at the premiere in Paris. Then he ate some bad oysters and got freaking typhoid. When he convalesced, he wrote the first opera, The Nightingale, moved to Switzerland. Around 1917, following World War I and the Russian Revolution, Stravinsky resigned himself that he'd never returned to Russia, and his music shifted from featuring Re- Russian folk aesthetics to a neoclassical idiom, which persisted over the next 30 years. In 1926, Stravinsky experienced a religious conversion that had a notable effect on his stage and vocal music. In 1936, Stravinsky wrote his autobiography, has been called factually unreliable. In 1940, he and his second wife settled in Hollywood, California. Stravinsky was nearly arrested for his rearrangement of the U.S. National Anthem during performance in Boston in 1944. Continued composing major works despite steadily declining health until his death in Manhattan apartment on April. 1971. Boom. I did it. I did it. I did it. There's a look of shock on my face that nobody can see. And there's also this really fabulous, like, like happy dance, like touchdown happy dance that I'm doing right now. That's amazing. Oh, I mean, I had to sacrifice some grammar. I did. I'll admit it. Welcome to Opera Blood Happy Hour, a show about Amanda and Tina getting drunk and using bad grammar. <laughs> that was awesome. Um, some things you failed to no- uh, note: his first wife was his first cousin. Oh, I didn't even. I don't. I don't think they I had, got like, that. Four kids together. <laughs> not not something we recommend, but cool. Good for them. No. And I forgot the other thing I was going to say, but anyway, really good job. That was awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I even got some snark in there. You did. I did. And guess what? Guess what opera we're doing. Okay. The um, only one you mentioned in your Oh, bio. The Nightingale? His yeah, The Nightingale. Hey, cool. <laughs> <laughs> the one he wrote while he was convalescing from typhoid. Yes. And his wife had tuberculosis and she was convalescing from that. At the same time, over the pro the process, this this it was a process to write this. Yeah, it was like several years. Yeah, let's talk about it. It took six. Six years. So, um, so the Nightingale, it's an opera in three acts. Um, all three acts fit into the space of about forty to fifty minutes. So really, it could be like a one act opera with three scenes, if you want to call it that. Cool, cool, but, cool. It, but it's based on the 1843 Hans Christian Andersen story, The Nightingale, mm. which I'm sure I don't, it, I don't know that you that, actually that story. might be surprised at, at 
being familiar with it. I think it's one of those that it's like, I think I've heard of that before. I don't know. (laughs) My husband didn't know it, but. Okay. So, so clearly your theory is bad, Tina. I mean, I knew it. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm, I'm, uh, one for two right Your now. sample size theory. is a little small there, babe. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see when I get into it. You'll have to tell me if you've actually heard it before, if it sounds okay. strangely familiar. So um, Stravinsky started composing this in 1908, which is the year that Rimsky-Korsakov died. Oh. And so you hear like a little bit of the Rimsky-Korsakov influence, and I'll talk about that in a bit. Um, so he started writing it in 1908, but he set it aside when he got a commission for his famous ballet, The Firebird. And then after Firebird, he also finished his two other major ballets, Petrushka and the Rite of Spring. And And the Rite of Spring, everybody, just just so everybody knows, because this is how I know Stravinsky, period. Like, I don't know anything of Stravinsky other than the Rite of Spring and the Firebird Suite. And the Rite of Spring, if you have seen the original Fantasia, is the one with all the dinosaurs. And the... Firebird Suite is from, not from, <laughs> featured in uh, Fantasia 2000, and it's the one where there's a volcano, and it, like, turns the whole forest to ash, and there's the green, like, fairy lady that comes back and brings it all back to life. I love it. I love and how many people know classical music from Because Fantasia. of Fantasia, dude, I love it, and I was, when I was a kid, I used to watch the original one, like, all the time. It was, like, my homesick from school movie. And it has become my daughter's homesick from school movie, which I am stoked about. Oh, the things we pass on to our children. I love it. She's even scared of the same parts that I was. (laughs) Night on Bald Mountain. (laughs) Night on Bald Mountain is something we usually do not watch right before bedtime, especially. And also the dinosaur one, to be honest. Um, Oh, interesting. Well, there's that scene... There's that scene when the T-Rex and the Stegosaurus are fighting to the death and the poor Stegosaurus does not make it. And that's a Mm. little intense. It's a little intense. And then when they traipse off into the desert of post-asteroid Earth and they're all dehydrated and like collapsing and falling into the tar pits. It's a little little, little traumatizing. It's it's better than the actual one, which is a maiden sacrificing herself by dancing to the death. That's true. This is true. Or is it? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) If you, if you want your daughter to be not afraid of the Rite of Spring, there's actually a great children's book called When Stravinsky Met Nijinsky, who was the composer for Rite of Spring. Cool, cool, cool. I know this because I saw it in the window of Wild Rumpus, which is a fabulous children's bookshop. Hmm. I wonder, now that we're talking about this, I wonder if they have online ordering. Because if they do, that is a way that we can support them during this weird ass time when nobody is able to go to their store. Hashtag support your local bookstore. Woo. Yes, it would appear that they have online ordering. So visit wildrumpusbooks.com and order some books, guys, so that you you too can shop for books with chickens and chinchillas. <laughs> can I talk about this opera note? I mean. I mean, I'm the one who started that entire (laughs) thing with the bookstore. I'm sorry. It's my fault. (laughs) It's usually my fault. Just blame me. It's fine. It's Amanda's fault. It's the wine's fault. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So so basically the point that I'm making is that he started composing this opera in 1908. And then he writes his three big ballets. 
and then he completes this piece, the, the Nightingale, in 1914 after the Rite of Spring premieres. Mm -hmm. So just a little background on Stravinsky. Um, his, his composing can be separated into three-ish periods. And his first period is known as the Russian period, sometimes known as his primitive period. Mm. Um, and it lasted from his tutelage under Rimsky-Korsakov until about 1920. And his neoclassical period then takes over in 1920 to 1954. And then 1954 to 1962 was his dodecaphonic, aka 12-tone period. Mm -hmm. But you hear a little bit of like 12-tone influence in his early period as well. So the beginning of the Nightingale starts when he's kind of still writing under the influence of Rimsky-Korsakov. It happens right after Korsakov has passed. So would we consider this the neoclassical or would we consider this like no. transitioning out of the Russian no, primitive this is, period? This is solidly within his Russian slash primitive period because that lasted until 1920 and this okay. is 1908 to uh, 1914. Yes. Sorry, numbers have yeah. a tendency to just like immediately leave my brain once they're said to me. I'm not very good at math for that reason. I have nothing to say to that. I, you can't relate, can you? <laughs> I can't add to that. I can't goof on that. I'm sorry. I can't relate. No. <laughs> well, particularly um, because we're talking about time and you have the special magical ability of being able to see time. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like actually experiencing time in three-dimensional space, but that's like, listen to whatever episode that was. That Neither here nor that. there. Neither here nor there. I think it was actually the Rimsky-Korsakov one because isn't Rimsky-Korsakov the one who was synesthesia. Synesthi synesthete? Yeah. So that's episode six. May night. There we go. Yeah. Yep, look at that. Full circle. Full circle. Okay. okay, so it takes him six years to write this because he starts it, sets it aside, and then comes back to it. And even though this composition takes place solidly within his class or his his Russian period, you can hear that he has a profound shift in his musical language because we we tend to like lump composers lives into these periods and we think all right here is one static period of this composer's life followed by another static period but really during these periods there's there's morphing and evolution mm -hmm. going on in the way things are written so in the first act of this opera you really hear um his almost impressionistic side. He was great friends with Ravel. Um, they were, they, they really admired each other. And so you, like listening to the opening of this opera, it sounds almost like if you were listening to the orchestral opening of Disney's Beauty and the Beast and combine that with like Ravel impressionism. Are you talking about the ba -da -da? No, like the, the like. Da -da 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 -da. That, that part that one like the prologue yes yes the prologue part so okay. it, it's like mm -hmm. that meets Ravel and, and it's so funny because I was listening to it and I I love Ravel I love the Ravel string quartet he's one of my favorites and as I was listening I was like this is super Ravel and as I did more research I realized that Stravinsky and Ravel actually worked together on some stuff and they really admired each other so there it is the Ravel but then as you get into the second and third act of this opera, there is a distinct shift in the compositional style. You definitely hear like a post Rite of Spring, like rhythmic drive that he's kind of discovered in his composing. Yeah. And he also adds in some, some like Chinese pentatonic scale type things because this piece, this fairy tale is set in ancient China, which we'll talk about. 
Sure. And like, um, I'm just remembering Rimsky Korsakov, one of his other big things that he was known for after he got out of his own Russian period was that he did a lot of travel um, and he heard these snippets from the native musics of all these different places and, and started to kind of create this sound that existed within his own repertoire, like uh, maybe that Chinese pentatonic scale, like it's obviously it's part of Chinese music as well, but doing this within the context of his own music to signify a culture um, mm -hmm. was something that Rimsky-Korsakov kind of pioneered. And so it makes a lot of sense that Stravinsky was doing it too. Yes, and I actually really want to talk about that after we take a break. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Tina. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're you're like beating me to the punch here. It's wonderful because I'm getting too because... smart for you. We've officially done ten episodes, and I'm getting too smart, and it's going to cease to be funny, <laughs> and you're not going to be able to su surprise me anymore. <laughs> it I'm just going to get too smart. Maybe our audiences too. <laughs> but um, I, I know that you guys talked a lot about Orientalism in the Turandot episode, mm -hmm. and Russian Orientalism is kind of its own thing, but we'll get there. We'll okay, get there. Cool. Just one final note before we jump into the plot. People hated this opera when it came out. Aww. And not because it's objectively bad. It's actually a really lovely piece, but it's specifically because of the Rite of Spring which premiered in 1913. <laughs> no, 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 no. Because, because as you mentioned, the Rite of Spring, there were like riots in the audience. I actually have this great quote from the woman who would become Nijinsky, the choreographer's wife. She said, um, one beautifully dressed lady in an orchestra box stood up and slapped the face of a young man who was hissing in the next box. Her escort rose and cards were exchanged between the men. A duel <laughs> followed the next day. Another society lady spat in the face of one of the demonstrators. So people, some people hated it. Some people loved it. And it really wasn't, it wasn't necessarily Stravinsky's music. Like people were already kind of riled up when the music started, but when the curtain comes up and they see that it's not like this beautiful elegant French ballet that they're expecting it is like mm -hmm. you know naked tribal dances and pagan rituals like people went nuts so suddenly oh the world knows who Igor Stravinsky is because of this and they're expecting like spectacle and they're expecting oh, something to get people riled tame. up it was too tame <laughs> exactly so it was just, like, like when Tim flat. Burton did Alice in a Wonderland <laughs> Compared to what? <laughs> I don't know, like Edward Scissorhands or like oh, fair. Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh, I guess. so compared to the rest of Tim Burton's output, you're saying? Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, I gotcha. That's exactly. That's the analogy we're making here. Although he is a little bit touch and go. Like some of his stuff is just all over. He's just all over the board. You know what? That's it's all about experimenting, and you're not going to yeah. make good art 100% of the time. And you got hey, you know, more bad art than good art. Cheers to that. Hold on. Cheers. <laughs> ching, ching. Virtual cheers. <laughs> oh, that's right. You're drinking tea. <laughs> I was I like, what the fuck is that? Drinking some nice calming. He's holding up this tea. ginormous mug. It's just a weird shape. It, now that you're facing it's it towards me, I see that it's, got a, that it's a cat It's a head. black cat because we happen to have a resident house panther. So this is my kiwi mug. Resident house panther. Yeah. Oh, diversion real quick. You may have noticed during my <laughs> intro that I spent some money at the uh, emergency vet today. And if anybody is concerned about that, I just want to let you know that my dog is fine. 
she's just a dumb head who eats her toys. And but we love them always. Oh my god. And now she hates me, of course, because I brought her to the bad place and they shaved <laughs> her belly so they could do an ultrasound. Oh she no. has this big rectangular bald spot on her belly. Oh, she's no. so mad at me. Every time I go near her, she just like shirks back, like, oh, it's mom. Several hundred Bob's dollars later, and you just have yeah. the hate of a dog to deal with. Yeah, she's freaking fine. She's fine. And before anybody asks, we did our due diligence, but we were not like trigger happy on this. Believe me, like we, we were very calm and calculated. And this was like over the course of several days of like, okay, we're watching her. And like my sister's a vet tech. Anyway, I'm defensive about it. And I wish I had my money back. Can I calm you with an opera about a fairy tale? I don't know. It's not working so far. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So for the plot. It's set in ancient China, quote unquote. Like I mentioned earlier, we'll save the Orientalism for later. Mm -hmm. Um, So what I want to do is just get through all three acts and then take a break. Okay. And then we can come back and talk about other things. Yep, I dig it. So act one, we open on the sea. It's just before sunrise. And there's a tired fisherman. And note, he is a tenor and not a Disney prince this time. Oh, congratulations (laughs) to that tenor. So the tenor fisherman hears the song of the titular nightingale and it calms him and it makes him forget his troubles for a while. And the fisherman himself is not a driving part of the plot. He's one of those characters who's both part of and apart from the plot and he serves as like a narrator of sorts. Did you just say narrator? Yes. Instead of narrator? No, instead of narrator, you said narrator. (sighs) Mm. you know that whole thing where like i just don't need wine to be drunk anymore <laughs> there it is narrator now <laughs> he serves as a narrator of sorts narrator narrator narrator, narrator. okay <laughs> oh my god uh, delightful okay. This is the only time that I'm going to mention the fisherman because he's he's always just kind of there weaving his way in and out of the opera, like mostly giving us exposition when we transition to a new act, but he's really not necessarily part of the plot. He's just kind of there. Okay. So enter the Chamberlain and the Bonds from the Emperor's Royal Palace, and they are guided by the cook who's told them about the amazing beauty of the nightingale's song, but the nightingale's nowhere to be found. And the cook is told that if she can well, locate- the nightingale's a bird. <laughs> so like, I don't know why they were thinking they were just going to be like, yeah, that one over there. I mean, so for the sake of this fairy tale, there's only one nightingale. <laughs> the nightingale is a singular being. Okay, got it. <laughs> got it. The nightingale. The capital N Nightingale. Exactly, exactly. So the cook is told that if she can locate the Nightingale, she will be given the position of private cook for the emperor. Oh, oh, oh. I know. I mean, that's pretty pretty baller. Yeah. (laughs) 
So the nightingale suddenly appears and sings and they are all just charmed by her song. And so she's given a formal invitation to sing for the emperor at the palace. And the nightingale agrees to visit the palace and sing for the emperor and his people. But she says, my sweetest songs really do happen in the forest. So like, I'll sing for you, but it's not going to be like to my full ability. <laughs> not going to be my best work, you know, it's just <laughs> I got a little cold. <clears throat> the air How many of us are like that dry. though? Oh my god! I'm take I my Musinex. I ran <laughs> out of Musinex. Warmed up. Oh my god! Oh my, my god! My face steamer is on the fritz. I mean, I swear by my face steamer. So. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, 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 you know, I like to poke fun at this, but it's exactly the reason that I didn't keep pursuing singing as a career because it's just so much goddamn work to keep your voice healthy. Or you're just like. Uh, there's no such thing as perfection, but we strive for it all the time. And like one little thing we can't get over. Like I have a little bit of phlegm, therefore it's not going to be my best. <laughs> yeah. I think if I was going to be a singer, I would have to give up dairy altogether. And I just, <sighs> I just love cheese so much. Oh, you're pouring more of your wine ration. <laughs> My husband gave me a wine ration before this recording session, not because I uh, have a, p- a tendency to drink too much per se, <laughs> maybe once in a while um, during this recording specifically, but uh, because it's election night, y'all, and he did not want to finish doing bedtime for our four-year-old and come out to a lack of wine. So I've been rationed. <laughs> It is the ration for those of you listening is literally a pint mason jar full of wine. It's a generous ration that she is pouring into her stemless wine glass. Last week, last week you gave me shit for drinking out of a mason jar, so I figured I'd try to be classier tonight. I. (laughs) I mean, the mason jar would be the more direct option here, but. It's true. It's true. I've uncharacteristically added a middleman to the situation. I'm not sure why. It's comforting me. You have middle management in your inebriation situation. (laughs) I can blame the middle manager. (laughs) It was it was Jerry's fault. (laughs) I don't know why the middle manager's name is Jerry. That's a good middle manager name. Brent. Brent. (laughs) so that's act one act two the courtiers are gathered at the palace to hear the nightingale song there's much pomp and circumstance as the emperor arrives and he commands the nightingale to sing and the courtiers are just moved to tears and the emperor is moved so deeply that he awards the nightingale a golden slipper question mark to wear Um, around her neck for a beautiful for her beautiful song what (laughs) i don't know is okay i find myself asking the question that i have a tendency to ask which is is this you said it's based on something is the hans christian anderson the hans christian anderson fairy tale yeah is the hans christian anderson fairy tale also orientalism or is it not it is it is yep okay all right um Wow, Hans Christian Anderson really had a thing about feet and legs and shoes. Did he? Well, Little Mermaid. Yeah. Also, I believe the red shoes is a Hans Christian Anderson 
Fable. Also, uh, okay, maybe I'm talking out of my ass, but the 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 movie with Danny Kay from like 1950, 60 something. The red shoes you're talking about? No, no, no. Um, Hans Christian Andersen, the movie with Danny Kay. Oh. Have you not seen this? This I have was, not. This was a childhood classic for me. That was probably a classic for my mom. And it was probably like playing on TV and she taped it on VHS. And it became one of my nostalgic movies. Uh, but he like starts out as a cobbler, which of course is fictionalized. But it makes me wonder if maybe that's a theme for him in more ways than I am remembering. And oopsie doopsie. And it makes me wonder if perhaps Hans Christian Henderson liked feet. <laughs> Some people do. Some people like feet. If you want pictures of my feet, <laughs> I'm now selling them because send COVID. A, <laughs> I was going to say send us an email at operaclubhappyhour at gmail.com. <laughs> or you can just hit Amanda up on Venmo. <laughs> yeah, I'm like kidding, but not kidding. <laughs> I have very okay feet. <laughs> They're exactly Would it help okay. if you had a golden slipper to hang around your neck? I really don't see how it would. I don't either. I don't <laughs> I really understand. Don't see how it would. I don't understand why a golden slipper is the thing. Uh, maybe it's like some old reference that I don't understand, or maybe there is a slipper noun other than the one that goes on your feet, or like lady. You think slippers. it's a mistranslation? <laughs> I maybe it's a mistranslation, or maybe there is another like noun definition of slipper that I am unaware of. I don't know. But uh, da, 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 gives her a slipper because her song is so beautiful. And by the way, this is a lot of pressure for the soprano, the coloratura soprano who sings the nightingale because she's supposed to sing so beautifully that it moves everyone to tears. <laughs> so like your soprano better be good. Everyone else could suck, but that nightingale better sing pretty. I'm sorry. I think I'm stress giggling, like I'm stress acting yeah. because I really just don't want this to end because when it ends, I have to go look at the election results. I, but here's the here's the thing. When people are hearing this, it is going to be in a post-2020 election world, hopefully fingers like? crossed. And we are going to be making them relive the stress. So oh, you're let's, right. Let's not, let's not let's, let's not give do people that. Sorry, some post-election vibes. And also just let me talk about this opera, please. Fine. Okay, so she has to wear a necklace with a shoe around it as a bird. <laughs> this bird has to wear a necklace with a shoe around it. Got I it. Guess. Um, so enter three emissaries from Japan who offer the emperor the gift of a mechanical nightingale. And the emperor is amazed by the mechanical bird as it sings for him. And the real nightingale gets really offended and flies away. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and the emperor is really angered by the fact that she just flies off so he banishes the nightingale from his realm and he Oof. names the mechanical nightingale first singer at court oh dear i don't know why but i'm i'm getting like obviously this is not the allegory hans christian anderson was trying to go for because it was the 1800s but this is just feeling a little bit like when you get a vibrator <laughs> and your partner's like careful you're gonna like that more than you like me <laughs> and you're like no <laughs> this is not true about my husband by the way <laughs> oh my god 
No, but he sounds really insecure. <laughs> they both sound really insecure. <laughs> She's like, you like that mechanical bird more than you like me. I'm leaving. And he's like, well, fine. You could never come back. I'm just going to enjoy my mechanical bird. That's the best, exactly it. Best bird I've ever met. Well, then let me tell you about Act 3, because it's years later. The emperor is ill and near death, and the mechanical nightingale is no longer functional. <laughs> Uh, okay you wore it out happens i get it man well that is no longer a vibrator it's just a dildo so like not as good says you okay (laughs) this episode holy cow it's a good thing we just put the explicit tag in everything automatically yeah well we have to because i can't control myself (laughs) This is my safe space, Tina. (laughs) I'm trying so hard not to, not to like put a wet blanket over this party. I know, but I definitely need to be reined in tonight. (laughs) Okay. Okay. You're not allowed to speak for the next couple of sentences. Fine. (laughs) Chug that wine. Okay. Okay. So the emperor is like dying. He doesn't have a mechanical nightingale to sing for him. And the dude just wants to hear some music. He really loves music and he needs to be soothed on his deathbed. And the real nightingale defies her order of being banished and flies to his side and starts to sing for him. And Death, as in capital D, Death, the character, hears the nightingale singing and, of course, is incredibly moved. And so she, Death, is sung by a contralto. She asks the nightingale. Why has it got to be a contralto? (laughs) Because the only other women in this are a cook and a bird. True, and but why does the kind of sorry? Cool. Better question. Why does the contralto have to be death? But you're right, death is kind of cool. It's actually very cool. I was just mostly poking at the trope of the contralto kind of being the role that sucks in a lot of cases. I don't know. I think I would kind of like to sing death. Not to say that I'm a contralto, but it's, oh yeah. I mean, the uh, the alternative is like a bass, right? Sure. But Stravinsky, as you mentioned, his father Fyodor was a famous opera singer. He was a mm-hmm. bass. Right. Mm. Um, we actually mentioned that in the May night episode that he sang yeah. for Rinsky Korsakov. Anyway, so the emperor is a base and the bonds and like other officials are bases. So this mm-hmm. is like the, the voice of royalty. And so we need some contrast, but it's still got to be low and earthy. Yeah. So yeah. Contralto. No, for sure. I dig it. Yeah. I'm just being snarky. Don't take me seriously right now. <laughs> so Death asks the nightingale to keep on singing, and the nightingale agrees to sing as long as death restores the emperor. What she says is, as long as death returns the emperor's crown, sword, and standard. Who has to do that? Death. Yes, I know what a crown is, Tina. (laughs) Good God. No, so death has to return the emperor's crown, sword, and standard, and the yeah. The standard, I'm assuming, is that the like the banner, the standard at the front yeah. of the like battle march. Yeah. So the way that I take this, were is they you, gone? <laughs> but he's dying, right? So the way okay. I take it is, you need to restore him to emperor again. Not like he needs to be healthy. To he needs to yeah. not die. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. yeah. That's essentially what she's asking. And so death agrees with the nightingale. Death takes the takes the. Uh, the agreement i guess <laughs> and so the nightingale sings and death slowly disappears from the scene 
the emperor returns to health and he offers the nightingale the first singer position that he previously bestowed on the mechanical bird. And the nightingale says that she doesn't need honors. The emperor's tears are reward enough for her song, but she promises to sing for him each night from dusk until dawn. The end. Hang, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. So she, so she brings him back to life by making a bargain with death on his behalf. Mm-hmm. And he's so grateful. And then on top of it, she promises to sing from him every day, for him every day from morning till night. Yes. This is a generous motherfucking nightingale. She, but he appreciates her song. Like he cries. He's so it's moved. True. It's true. And what singer doesn't just want to yeah. sing for people who appreciate them all the time? <sighs> Truth. That's pretty invaluable. All right. I dig it. I dig it. That's a very sweet story. Did it sound familiar to you at all? Have you heard no, it? No, I had never heard it. I had never heard it. Interesting. Maybe I just had a weird childhood that I've heard these fairy tales. Well, you know, they're they're Hans Christian Anderson fairy tales. You've heard some of them and you haven't heard others. And that's fair. Just depends on what your parents remembered, I guess, or what your teachers thought was relevant. <laughs> so is the Rite of Spring technically also from his primitive period? They all all of those ballets and this opera. Okay. Well, well then in that case, I would probably still really like it. It's, it it is interesting to me that the audience was, (laughs) I mean, I guess it makes sense that they were underwhelmed, but his music is just, even those from his quote unquote primitive period, his music is so uh, intense and experimental sounding and just really takes you for a ride, man. And so I would be really surprised if the Nightingale didn't at least do that. To a certain extent, but I do think that that's the reason that people were underwhelmed because the music doesn't really take you for a ride. It kind of reverts back to something a bit more post-romantic slash impressionistic, which is weird to think of impressionistic not being like forward thinking enough at this time because it's the height of like Ravel and Anywho, um, yeah, people just thought it wasn't forward-thinking enough having heard Rite of Spring, so. Hmm. Hmm. Well, can't say I fault, my guess. You need more wine, but you're, uh, you're rationed. Oh, oh, the jar is going to be emptied into the wine glass. You're getting every last drop. She's like shaking the jar into the wine glass, hoping that more wine is going to happen. <laughs> I mostly just like wanted to see if I could catch the sound of the drops of wine. <laughs> All right. So this opera is set in quote-unquote ancient China. Ancient um, China. And, and yes, it is a Hans Christian Andersen way of like, I'm setting this piece in, uh, in, in some foreign mystical land, so it feels more fairy tale-ish, you know? Mm. But to be honest, that emperor could be from any country and the yeah, it could really literally didn't... be anywhere. It has At no bearing on the story. At least when you were giving the synopsis, it didn't really feel... It certainly didn't feel like the level of Orientalism we see in Turandot, where it's just like no. blatant stereotyping and cultural appropriation and just 
horribleness. Yeah. Yeah. It, it doesn't ping pang and pong. Uh, I, <laughs> when I heard how just how surprised you guys were by ping pang and pong, I remembered once when I was doing some sort of like opera trivia thing and it was like mm -hmm. what opera are ping pang and pong from and I said uh the Mikado thinking that that was <gasps> the right it's answer that ridiculous because yeah. it's ridiculous <sighs> but this opera thankfully doesn't rely on any of those oriental stereotypes it's it's really literally just to put it in some sort of far away mystical location yeah and of course this is this is written at the height of like you know thousand one arabian nights has been translated to mm -hmm. french and other um, languages in the early 1800s and it's like really captured everybody's imagination so when hans christian anderson is writing a fairy tale what seems like a fairy tale land ancient china so <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay buddy well mm, yeah i mean yeah it's so fairish it it, fair fairish yeah there, so there, there's a little bit of like exoticism going on definitely but it's not as not as icky not i as, would say yeah nefarious as turned on and nefarious yeah. is nefarious is even the wrong word too because like and i'm not excusing it at all but like it was just acceptable in the yeah. early 1900s to just be that kind of ra that brand of racism was just like whatever it's a type of it's a genre yeah which is exactly. so gross they didn't view it as racism they were just they the thing is who views themselves as racist but they definitely <laughs> saw themselves as superior and this was like this exotic culture to be consumed you know yeah, that's, that's a fair point. Like, it's only recently that, you know, the term anti-racist has come into the zeitgeist and people are looking at them. People are starting to look at themselves and be comfortable saying like, yes, I am in some ways racist. And it's not that I am proud of it. It's not that I choose to be. It's that I've been raised in a society that is racist and i have been molded by it and so i have to unlearn a lot of this stuff and that's not okay but that's like it's an okay place to recognize that you are and move forward from yeah and so yes back then and even as recently as today there are many people who would say i'm not racist i just think i'm better than people who don't look like me they wouldn't say that yes <laughs> but they would almost say it they would very well, nearly say it i mean when's the last time you spoke to somebody who's who speaks english as a second language and everybody thinks that they're stupid because they don't understand english but it's like no this person is speaking two languages they're probably smarter than you they just don't oh, compute on the same level of english that you do because you use it colloquially and maybe they struggle with that a little bit like that doesn't mean they're not as smart but we just automatically assume they're not so yep yeah, but I want to say Orientalism in opera typically takes on, it, it goes one of two ways. There's either like the comic Orientalism where we have like a buffo base and he's like making fun of maybe like an emperor or something and, and he's, he's meant to be like, this culture is stupid. And this buffo base has kidnapped a white woman like a European woman, and then people okay. have to save her. So we get like abduction from the Seraglio, we get l'Italiana in Algeria, we get stuff like that, right? The other direction is there is an Oriental woman who falls in love with a white man 
and their love is forbidden. And to solve this forbidden love thing, she ends up dying. <laughs> so we get things like Lakme, we get Madame Butterfly, we get uh, uh, Thais. So usually those are the categories that Oriental operas fall into. And this one doesn't fit into either of them. And maybe the fact that it's a fairy tale kind of takes it out of there a mm -hmm. little bit. Yeah. But um, it's also a little bit weird for a fairy tale as well, because the protagonist is a woman and she is not a passive princess and she's not like an active evil fairy tale witch. She's, well, actually, she's not a woman. She's an anthropomorphized feminized bird. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Fair. Sure. But sure. Fair. <laughs> I mean, when you put it that way, then there's only one woman in this opera and it's the cook. No, and death. But can you say death is anthropomorphized as well? Okay, okay, okay. yep, fair, 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 fair. Yep. So mm -hmm. if we take it as the nightingale is a woman, then she doesn't really fit into the fairy tale woman. She doesn't really fit into fairy tale protagonist either. How big is the chorus of this opera? Large. They only sing at the beginning of the second act, but you need a sizable chorus. I would say like 20 some people. They sing one time and you need 20 people. Yeah. Rude. It's Russian or <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you can get away with eight, but I think it probably sounds better with the orchestration to have a bigger balance of voices. <laughs> Rude. I always think about this like I have a trouble just not thinking about it from like a production standpoint like how would we cast this how would we pay for this how would we stage it and like that's just so rude to the performers like to the stage managers to have to coordinate like okay the show's already started you're just showing up and we need all these 20 people to just go on stage one time to sing one song and we're gonna pay them for that one song it just feels like I don't know. I've never, I've never been a super or a swing or a chorus member. Although I auditioned misguidedly. <laughs> and, you know, it just feels like a costuming expense. It, it is. I mean, this, this happens so often in opera though, like most Mozart operas, mm -hmm, if there mm -hmm. is a chorus, it is, I mean, it's on stage for maybe one or two numbers. And it just seems also like choruses in a lot of like romantic and Baroque and classical operas exist to show like maybe not in a lot of cases opulence. Like they're there yes. to show like this is the court, this huge court of people and or like a ballroom or like Oh God, not Tosca. What's the one I'm thinking of? Um, what's the one where she freaking gets cholera and like the father Traviata? is like, against it? Yes, thank you, Traviata. Um, that Moulin that Rouge. chorus. Well, yeah, <laughs> that chorus is essentially just there to be like, we like to party. Like it's just, uh -huh. it's very fluffy. Very much. It's very fluffy. Very much. But it also gives people a chance to perform, so I can't really knock it. That too. That too. And also, speaking of fluffy, like this plot is very, it's very sparse. You don't really need much. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. how do you fill up the time? Chorus number. Chorus number. <laughs> One chorus number. Well, I will say this. I will say this. Thank you, Stravinsky, for not 
prolifically adding in chorus numbers simply to fill time. I can't complain too much about that because that is my honest, that is truly my biggest pet peeve is like wasted time in opera when we're not moving the plot forward and we're not doing anything that develops character. We're just. Yeah. Showing off. Yeah. I, I had to like, uh, by saying that I had to stop myself from going down this road, I'm going to end up going down this road. So I may as well just say it anyway. There was a tradition of grand opera, typically French grand opera, where it is massive. Like I'm thinking of um, like Meyer Bear operas that need huge sets, huge choruses, large casts. Everybody gets like multiple arias for no reason whatsoever. Like in the Huguenots, there's a page boy who gets to sing like a six minute aria. It's maybe not six minutes, but it's long enough. And it's got all this coloratura just to say, hey, I've got a message. <laughs> and then the opera has like a massive introduction. There are ballets for no reason whatsoever other than to include the ballet. There is a mini opera staged at intermission and then more what? opera. And it is just, yes, yes. Ooh. Like grand opera is a thing and, and just like over the top opera is a thing. And then there's Not this huge, there's this huge reform that comes with Gluck when he writes, um, Orpheus and Eurydice, Eurydice, however you want to say it, and he pairs things down, and he you he definitely don't want to say Eurydice. You definitely Eurydice. don't want to say Eurydice. Eurydice. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um. So so he pairs it down, and he says, "All right. So now the overture has something to do with the opera, and now the ballet has to be part of the plot. You can't just have a ballet to have a ballet, and that's where opera becomes more cohesive and less fantastic. Yeah, good for yeah. Luke. There are still operas that are over the top. Oh, yeah. I mean, think of Verdi operas. I mean, think. Of oh yeah, no, I'm not or... by any stretch. Am I suggesting that Gluck solved the problem? But like, no. good for him for introducing the solution at least. Yeah, because my goodness. And I it's... think this this piece is a wonderful example of of telling a beautiful story and doing it in a succinct way. I mean, there really are not that many characters. You don't need to go off on side plots to fill things in with fluff. You don't need a million chorus numbers. You know, it's just you can tell a beautiful story in 50 minutes with gorgeous music. Yeah. And I, I really wish this one were more performed. But I say that about a lot of the pieces we talk about because they tend to be kind of random. Yeah, on for purpose. sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know. I so you mentioned earlier about Russian Orientalism, like Rimsky Korsakov, oh, yeah. and like making it part of that. the culture. So Russian Orientalism is it's a different flavor of Orientalism than say like Western European Orientalism, mm -hmm. like Italianate or whatever, because Russia Par shares a border with China. Parts of like, Russia are like basically Asia. Exactly, exactly. So it is it is kind of part of their culture. Yeah, sure. And and so Russian Orientalism is a little bit more true to true Asian culture, and sure. it's, it's less caricature and it's more less appropriation ap and more appreciation. Bingo! That's exactly it. And the fact that they have, I mean, they they intermarried, you know, yeah. into different, and so so part of that culture is absorbed into their culture. And so yeah, Russia is actually considered part of 
Orientalism, but it's also kind of apart from Orientalism, depending on mm. which way you want to look at it. I mean, it's depending. humongous. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. It's terrifyingly large. Yes. <laughs> so we, we, we get some like Orientalism in here in, in not like capital O bad Orientalism. We get some Oriental melodies and, and harmonies and stuff like that. And it's not just like appropriating Chinese folk songs. It's legitimately Stravinsky using their scales Mm-hmm. to create the atmosphere of the music so that's cool. it just I mean maybe because I'm a white girl talking about this I feel like it's more okay but it just feels <laughs> less icky to me <laughs> yeah well I mean like again also uh, hi I'm Amanda my name is Amanda <laughs> Carlson <laughs> I'm also a white girl so yeah like I don't know how valuable my opinion is about this but that does seem to make a little bit of sense that yeah, for all the reasons that you you just listed, like it's not quite the dipping a ladle into somebody else's bowl that we see in like British Orientalism. Mm-hmm. So that's comforting. And yeah. yeah, and it definitely, like I said, it doesn't super feel like like the story itself, like I don't feel that there are themes of Orientalism that are deliberately caricaturizing or poking fun or minimizing or anything like that so I'm definitely very curious to have a look at this one yeah I, I think every episode <laughs> well yeah you should really watch this one though but I think when Hans Christian Andersen wrote it it was just like he had a tale in mind mm-hmm. because there were several things going on in his life first of all he was obsessed with Jenny Lind familiar she was an opera singer known as the Swedish Nightingale if you've watched that um P.T. Barnum movie uh, what's it called oh, you know talking about the greatest showman the one, yeah yeah Jenny Lind is a character in there because oh. she had a relationship with P.T. Barnum not like a sexual oh. one although maybe Barnum wanted it that way but anyway Jenny Lind <laughs> the Swedish Nightingale and so Hans Christian Andersen writes a story about a beautifully singing Nightingale But there's also a story about one of his family members being on his deathbed and him kind of like, oh, let me just find it. Let me just find it because I won't do it. Okay, Anderson, whose own father died of tuberculosis, may have been inspired by Ode to a Nightingale um, and he uh, uh, by... Oh, he, he may have been inspired by Ode to a Nightingale, a poem by John Keats, who wrote in anguish over his brother Tom's death of tuberculosis. And Keats even evokes the emperor in the story. He says, um, thou was not born for death, immortal bird. So, and, and it goes on. But anyway, so there, there are some, I think, I think there are some convenient things that he wanted to put together in a story and he just needed to make it feel other. And so he turned it into a Chinese fairy tale. I think, you know, it's not the way I would do it now, knowing what we as a culture know about cultural appropriation. But I think that for his time, it's about it's about the most respectful way I've seen anyone appropriate another culture in that time period. Is it appropriation if you're imposing something upon the culture? Like, like we basically invented the fortune cookie and we're like, this is Chinese now. And so he came up with this story and he's like, well, this is a Chinese folktale now. Yeah, maybe it's not appropriation. 
It's like opposite appropriation. It's yeah, imposition. It's re- oh, cultural imposition. You may have just coined a term there, Miss Tina. No, that's very that's very smart. I'm gonna have to kind of dig a little bit into the the definitions of those words and see if that truly applies. I think it does though. But like, yeah, because we're we're creating something and saying, oh, this is this is Asian, <laughs> this is yeah. Chinese, and we're gonna. The same thing happened with harem pants, which is really? actually it's an invention of the French ballet. Oh my goodness, I had so no idea. That whole thing comes from ballet costumes. Wow. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> so I want to ask your thoughts about staging fairy tales as opera mm. or in theater in general. Yeah. I haven't done a lot of it, to be honest. I staged a production of Midsummer Night's Dream, which I guess you could consider mm. sort of a fairy tale. Um, and I've done some sci-fi <laughs> staging. Um, but I think that I, I love, I love the chance to just really have a great excuse to dabble into um, surrealism. Mm-hmm. whether it's in the costuming or the sets or the movement of the actors. Um, I tr- I do it anyways, when it's meant to be realist anyways, but uh, especially in opera, because there's such a great need for um, kind of interpretive movement. So for the audience's benefit, so that we can bring a modern audience with us as we, as we do this kind of otherwise sort of esoteric art form. Um, but I do really enjoy the opportunity to just really go there and just be a little bit kooky with everything that you're doing because it already exists in kind of this other alternate plane of this isn't real. This didn't happen. You don't have to be true to facts. You can kind of do whatever you want with this as long as it still helps to move the story along. Um, and everybody seems to have fun with it. The costumer has fun with it. The set designer has fun with it. Like it's always just a fun experience and, and trying to bring the, the team, the creative team, the costumer, the set designer, the light designer, um, everybody, the choreographer, the music, everybody along with this kind of shared goal of have some fun, do some crazy shit we're still telling this story. This is the story we're telling. And this is the goal we want to tell with this story, but really explore, like push yourself and like do a lot with a little, like a lot of times you got a small budget. So like how creative can you get? And it's really fun to see what comes of it. And audiences have a tendency to really appreciate it too. It's very scrappy and very inventive and engaging in that way. Yeah. It's, it's licensed to be imaginative, which you Mm -hmm. don't, you don't necessarily get in other operas and not because not because like updating a production or making something more whimsical is impossible to pull off and make it cohesive. It's just that audiences expect a certain something from operas like uh, Tosca, yeah. for example. You could never make Tosca like kooky and otherworldly. Silly, no. Not, not necessarily silly, but like, but updating it even to, Would be to modern yeah, times sure. or, or just kind of going there with sets and props and being imaginative in that way that fairy tales are, people would be incensed. So, yeah. Well, and it just wouldn't work for the story in a lot of ways too, because it gets so specific. Fairy tales are great because they can become non-specific simply by their nature. 
um, and a lack of specificity, kind of as we talked about in the um, uh, bah, 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 turn of the screw episode from Halloween. Um, a lack of specificity makes it really easy to map the story onto a lot of people's experience and, and easy to sit in the audience and go, wow, I can relate to this, even though it's very, very different for me in a lot of ways, I relate to this because it's not telling me I shouldn't. Um, and I think that's really important. It also, as a performer or a director or any, any of the members of the creative team have a tendency to really enjoy a lot of fairy tale or, um, mythological or non-realist types of stories because that license to explore and be creative is a form of play and as adults and as even as people who have a creative field you know we have to monetize our our creativity and that takes a big element of play away from it and that's something that oh man I've done a lot of investigating this in myself in the last couple of years, but just realizing how missing that, that the mental state of play, the true like lack of inhibition and the lack of um, unnecessary boundaries, the feeling of being able to being able to do anything that feeling of like, not just freedom, but of like being vaulted into your best self moment to moment is really gone mm -hmm. unless we exercise that muscle. And sometimes when I'm staging things that are in this uh, arena of, of otherworldliness, and I need my actors to access that play. And I do this in straight, straight stuff too, but we got to do a lot of work. We got to do a lot of table work at the front end. We got to do a lot of like movement work and, and stretching and think, stretching of our minds and how we're thinking about how we look when we perform. Because especially in opera, there's a lot of buttoned up feeling mm -hmm. to the performance of it and, and feeling like you need to be perfect, you need to be poised, you need to that that park and bark thing comes from a, I think, a need. I, I would say the residual existence of park and bark comes from, A, the fact that most trained opera singers are getting the bulk of their performance experience in a, a recital setting. So there's not a whole lot of room for really performing with your whole body and the whole space and the whole lack of inhibition that comes from putting on a costume and having the light shining in your face in a certain way. But also because this is an art form that requires an incredible amount of training and an incredible amount of training that teaches us that there is a right way to do this. And once you learn the right way, then you can play. But mm -hmm. first you have to learn the right way. And it's it can be really restrictive and I respect it. But there's a lot of remedial learning that I have to do with my actors to get them back to that mental space of creativity when I'm staging anything that requires it, which yeah. to me is everything I stage because I refuse to put up an opera that's not creative, even if it's rooted in realism. Well, on the, on the flip side, do you find that because it's a fairy tale, 
it is difficult to draw three-dimensional characters. I think it depends. I think that it depends on the text. It depends on how the character is literally portrayed in the story. Um, I make it a point to not have any extraneous characters on the stage. Like every mm -hmm. single actor on the stage needs to understand why their character exists, what the character's goals are, what their obstacle is. Otherwise, they're just a glorified chorus member and I don't generally like to do stuff that has just chorus unless it's a vehicle for something else. And by do stuff, what, what I really should say is I don't like to watch stuff that mm -hmm. has just a bunch of people on stage who have no investment in the story, which is not to say that actors who do chorus work don't have an investment in it. It's mostly, I mostly blame the writers when, when that's how it feels. Um, but that being the case, it's absolutely imperative that if you're on stage and you're part of a story that's being told, that you see yourself and that the director see you and that ultimately the audience be able to then see you as part of this world. Mm -hmm. And when you walk around in the story, you're not there for no reason. You know, think I, I this is kind of a weird, I don't know why my brain just did this, but my brain just brought me to that opening number in um, Beauty and the Beast, the mm -hmm. um, bonjour, good day, how is your family? Like all those characters, we see them for a millisecond, but they have an objective. They have something they're trying to do. I, I need six eggs, you know? Yeah, that's too expensive. <laughs> that's too expensive, I know. So, so that tells a good story. And even if they weren't saying anything, you look at movies like that and you see these background actors or background, you know, animated characters doing things. They're going about their lives. They're not just there to prop up the lead character. I mean, in some ways they do prop up the lead character, but they do so much a better job of doing that if they, if they create this world by existing in it as if they existed in this world. Yeah. Yeah. You got to tell that story, man. Everybody's got to tell the story. Otherwise, what are you doing? I have strong feelings about this, Tina. That's why I asked you. I had a feeling you would have strong feelings about this. <laughs> <laughs> so play going off of your your idea of just like the play and the imagination and telling a story there's a particular production of the nightingale that i watched and i just i would be remiss if i did not call it out because please do it is stunning oh cool it is are you familiar with the director robert lepage no i'm not should i he, be? Oh, you should be. He did um, L'Amour de Noir at the Met, which I loved. He also did the Thomas Addis Tempest. He just, he's so imaginative and people are like, all right, here's a shit ton of money, make it happen. And Robert de Lepage. Robert Lepage. So R-O-B-E-R-T. That's gotta L be a pen name. He's, he's Quebecois. So it's L-E-P-A-G-E, Lepage, Robert Lepage. Lepage. Robert Lepage. 
So in 2009, he did a production from Canada. He did a production at the Canadian Opera Company, and it was like it was like the Nightingale and other. They have one Canadian Opera Company for that entire (laughs) expanse. There are several, but there is one called (laughs) the Canadian Opera Company. (laughs) I know. I was just kidding. So, um, so the way he did it was was very interesting because he took the orchestra and he put them on the stage, and then he took the pit and he filled it with water. <gasps> so the pit is a pool of water, yes! and there there are some platforms on either side of the pit and maybe like a little walkway between the orchestra and the water where the chorus can stand or some action can happen, but. The, the whole thing is done, well, not the whole thing, but most of it is done with puppetry. And I know, and it's some of the most beautiful puppetry I have ever seen. Oh they hired the guy who did The Lion King on Broadway for the puppetry. And I guess Hans Christian Anderson himself, he, he loved Chinese shadow puppet theater. So Lepage had the idea of using puppets in this piece. And Lepage was very interested, or is, he's still alive, um, very interested in Vietnamese culture and their water puppets. And so he just, he really wanted to use like this Asian tradition of puppetry. And it is just the most beautiful stagecraft and storytelling. I'm telling you, like the water is, is um, it goes up to the, the singer's waists. They are actually submerged up to the waist in water. And like the fisherman, the tenor comes out and he's leading this boat with like a miniature puppet fisherman in it. And you see him just like wiping his forehead. You can see the puppet's exhaustion. He's doing all this brilliant puppet choreography and also singing. And the puppets have like fully, it's so cool. And they have like fully dexterous fingers. So like at one point the puppet, puppet fisherman reaches into the water and grabs a fishing net and pulls it into the boat. It is just, I cried a little bit, which is which is high praise for me because it's so hard for me to just like sit there and enjoy an opera. We've talked about this before, yeah. but it was just, it's such a beautiful piece of theater <sighs> and it's only 50 minutes long. The entire thing is available on YouTube. Like watch it, watch it with your kids, watch it's it on by YouTube? yourself. It's on YouTube. I'm, I'm going to share it with you. It's, it's so Are you gonna worth, put like, it on the website, put it on the website. Oh my, oh my gosh. God. Yes, 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 yes. And I'll say the, the subtitles for this one are in German but it doesn't matter because you know the story yeah. after listening to this podcast <laughs> and sure. you don't feel like you're missing out on anything. You just get absorbed into the gorgeous artistry. Oh my God. I just did I a quick even... little search on YouTube for Robert Lepage, Robert, Robert, <laughs> Robert, Robert Lepage. Robert Lepage. Um, and his stuff looks awesome also yeah god to have a budget like that right right oh for god. opera companies to just throw a shit ton of money at you and they say make your wildest dreams come true oh and then god. do it for thousands it, of people oh my god <laughs> yeah that'd be amazing that's the dream man yeah budget I'm, right <laughs> i have to say i am so grateful to this podcast because i never would have sought out that particular version of the opera before and we've talked about how I have a problem where I don't pay attention to operas that don't have roles for me and this obviously doesn't because there are there's a coloratura soprano a soprano and a contralto and none of those involve Tina so well and I have that's legit and I have the kind of not the opposite but like a, a related problem which is that like I I'm a director and I have some standards about what I want to direct but it's so hard to know what falls into that category and what doesn't just by 
a cursory search, you know, like it, <laughs> unless, unless anybody has a recommendation for me, which I would welcome. I don't know of like a search engine on the interwebs. That's like, Oh, you have a small cast for an opera. I know of this for oh, music. I know of a search engine for you. I'll send it to you. <laughs> my goodness asking you shall receive <laughs> asking you shall receive fantastic yeah because i i have a tendency to feel really overwhelmed by the canon <laughs> and having yeah. any idea like what should i even be watching what should i listen to what should i look at i do know a handful of composers and this is one of them so yeah. cool I think this would be one of those pieces where you could switch the voicing around a little bit and people are not going to mm -hmm. be too offended because it's not like near and dear to people, which is kind of a shame because I think it's a beautiful piece. No, and, like, I don't think it is a shame. I don't think it is a shame because I think we're entering, especially with like all the talk we've having about yellow face and black face and misogyny and all of the various things that grand opera and major like audience favorites have done wrong for a long time. We're getting into a place where at the very least the smaller companies and increasingly the larger companies are going to stop doing those. They're going to stop doing those ones, or at least they're going to stop doing them fully staged. They're going to start doing them in smaller formats and they're going to need some new repertoire. Yeah. You know, and, and people are just going to have to start buying tickets to operas they haven't heard of, <laughs> you know, like Ooh, people are man. just going to have to start doing that. I just wanted to say one more thing about this opera for sure it's it is there are so many operas that are called quote-unquote family operas and yeah. that typically means like Hansel and Gretel uh, and sure, Cinderella sure. and like stories that kids, are for kids yeah yeah and the Nightingale is I would say it's a family opera because you're gonna you're gonna love the beautiful story and the kids are gonna get the story but then you yeah. also get all these other themes of like compassion on the part of the nightingale after being banished and she's like this mm. person is gonna die and I can save him like I'm gonna be yeah. compassionate you know even though he's wronged me and you get themes of like real versus mechanical and which should we treasure more yeah you know, so, that, so there are so many themes that you can that you can really glean from a 40 to 50 minute opera as an adult but kids are still gonna love it too so it's it's yeah. it's a family opera that doesn't like dumb down the plot for an adult if that makes that's sense cool. or the themes. yeah that's yeah. really cool yeah i really liked this one as you can tell cool i'm glad i'm excited to watch it so with that thanks everybody for listening if you want to know more about the show, you can visit our Facebook page or you can check out our website at Opera Plot Happy, happy Hour. <laughs> Opera, <laughs> Opera Plot Happy Hour. Opera Plot Happy Hour. <laughs> Let me try that again. Opera Plot Happy Hour.com. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. And while you're there, please smash the subscribe button then rate and review us because it helps other people find the show and it also because it makes us feel good about ourselves and let me open my book for next week's opera can't wait to find <gasps> out.
Who is Next it? Next week's composer is Richard Strauss. Yes! I've been love waiting me for some this. Strauss. Oh, really? Ooh. Yes, I, I love wonder Strauss. which one it is. <laughs> the last one we did for the opera, for the opera, for the audience, the last one we did was Daphne. That was the Strauss opera we talked about. Uh-huh. And it was dope. So I'm excited too. And I would like to leave you with the words of composer John Cage, who says, I can't understand why people are frightened of new ideas. I'm frightened of the old ones. <laughs>